0: As our circle of knowledge grows like the universe, it also means that the edge of what we don't know continues to grow bigger. And I I started to realize that when I heard that, I started to think maybe part of the reason that really good, amazing people in our jobs, in our communities, in our lives, who we know create amazing moments, the reason that they diminish themselves so they don't see themselves as leaders is because in the grander scheme of how many people are on earth, They don't see their impact as mattering that much. What I try to let people know is that let's slide away all these other people that we use to judge our behaviors who aren't there and instead start to ask ourselves, how is this impacting the people who are there every day?
1: Hello and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear one conversation after another that generates aha moments for you. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. It's so well hidden by the negative noise that we're calling it a conspiracy of goodness. Yes, it is still an amazing world out there. And on this podcast, we're going to introduce you to some of the people making it that way. So hi, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of the Goodness Exchange, which is the mothership website to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. There you can find articles, this podcast, collections of content, a video library that can put a spring in your step again. And we're here to shine a light today on an amazing thought leader in the world of leadership. Today, we're going to go down a wonderful path with a leader, Drew Dudley, who I first met years ago. Drew is an internationally acclaimed leadership speaker and an educator. He's a Wall Street Journal bestselling author, and he's surely a charter member of the conspiracy of goodness that we've been pointing to for many years. Drew and I became friends years ago because I stumbled upon an amazing TED Talk that he made that now has over 6 million views. It's called Everyday Leadership and often referred to as the lollipop moment TED Talk. So if you've come across that, you'll see Drew in one of his earliest moments, which I know sometimes we both look at our work and kind of cringe here and there. But, you know, there must be an essence to what he was talking about that day, because it has the power to fundamentally connect with almost everyone I've ever shared it with. I shared it with people. I share it now still with people. So through Drew's work, he reminds us that leadership is an ordinary, everyday momentary opportunity. And his work is not just about us recognizing that we can all have moments of leadership, but we can also go a little further and create them. So Drew's work reminds me that leadership also comes in the form of kindness. It's about patience and forgiveness. And activity is like teaching and listening and complimenting each other it's not solely the purview of people who have a moniker as a leader or an executive. It's for every one of us who might compliment the clerk in a grocery store who might, well, I, the other day, I was passing a window washer on main street. He was doing such a beautiful job. And I thought of, I thought of Drew and I engaged in this wonderful conversation with this guy washing windows and, I tell you, he stood about six inches taller when we parted. And you know what? I think I walked away six inches taller too. So let's start. Drew Dudley, welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. Oh, Linda, it is always
0: such a good time to talk with you. And I come in knowing that I want to bring my best energy. And then you just like take it to another level before I even get to start. So it's always a pleasure to get to talk ideas with you. So hi to you, hi to all your listeners, and let's do this thing.
1: Okay, well, you know, I have to tell you, I read business books constantly, business and leadership and innovation, just books that have fresh thoughts. And Drew's book, Day One, is undoubtedly, if you want to grab a book, that's just one of those great books to hear story after story from, that I can't unsee the story of you taking that dune buggy ride in the desert with this guy. I can't unsee you, your own story about complimenting the grocery store clerk or the students coming in with a dilemma that you guys completely framed up a different way and came up with a new way of looking at the world. This is why I wanted to bring you on the podcast again, because you guys can look in the show notes. We first interviewed Drew way back in the start of this podcast before we did video. And so we'll make sure we link you that conversation as well, but I gotta tell you, you define right off that the term leader and the term leadership are separated by about 500 years. Oh, so yeah. let's just talk about that right there.
0: Yeah. You know what? I always mix up the word. Is it epistemology, entomology? One means studying bugs and one means studying the origins of words. And I've always been fascinated by where words come from. And I completely forgot that little point you just made is that I think it came up because recently I was doing a speech. I was reminded of the fact of where the word leadership came from, where they were asking for a French translation. And I asked a friend of mine who's fluent in French, I said, well, what is, the my God, I can't believe I've never asked this before. What's the French word for leadership? And they said, there is no French word for leadership. There's no French word for leader. And it's so weird to realize that I was going in to speak to an entire audience of people on a topic, because this was a Quebec company, on a topic for which there was no word in their language. And it, it says so much about how languages choose to incorporate new ideas. But isn't it weird to think of the idea that leader and leadership are new enough ideas that an entire ancient language does not contain them? And I find that to be a real eye-opener on how new the study of this idea is, despite the fact that it's ubiquitous as an important thing now. You know, oh, you have to show your leadership skills in your job interviews. Companies are looking for young leaders. I'm like, man, this is so new that most languages don't even have a word for it found that to be fascinating because it takes up such a big part of both of our lives, I think. It's weird to think that this is a relatively new study and understanding. It used to just be people were people you wanted to follow or people were people you didn't want to follow. The idea that there was a process to it, that there were skills to it, there were things to learn about it, that's all new. You were born a leader or you weren't. And that usually meant you were born a white dude with power or not. And so it's nice to be a part of a conversation now that's constantly looking for ways for it to be more inclusive.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the purpose that of me wanting to share this topic so much with our listeners, because I think it is so easy to think of leadership as something that is not in our future or in our path. And yet it is every day when we have opportunities to listen more than we talk or be kind and pay attention or not or whatever.
0: I also think just to realize that The difference in our understanding of leadership changed so dramatically when the word was invented. It's the same way of realizing that the word tweet in 1980 would mean nothing. But what Twitter, what social media in general has created is an entirely new way of looking at the world. The difference between how we understood the world pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook, pre-social media and how we look at it now, you can't even compare the two. That's what happened with the idea of leadership. It was that transformative to create the word leadership. It changed everything the same way social media changed the way that we look at information now. The invention of the word leadership changed the way that people started to look at what influence meant and it broadened it significantly. But the idea of a a single word transforming the world around us, the word tweet, the word post, like the term social media, they meant nothing and then they changed everything. I think if we go back, we realize that that's what leadership did when we brought that into the world as well.
1: You know, it's funny. I was, I was writing yesterday. I was riding along in the car with my 26 year old daughter, who's an engineer in a company. And we were talking about everyday leadership in a different context, but very much close to this. She said, I wonder if they had morning meetings back in the caveman days. Oh,
0: wow. Yeah. Like, like, was there a (laughs) check-in?
1: Yes, because like we were talking about how wonderful it is when you see examples of people self-organizing. When something, you know, like there's a problem, and then, you know, everybody's yeah. chosen where their best places. It happens at my big family cabin back in Illinois. We have 30 people I cook for every weekend. And boy, after dinner, everyone self-organizes and the dishes get done. And I, <laughs> I get to just sit there and watch because... I cooked it all for three hours. But I love this thought of things being, in some ways, everybody self-organizes. And in leadership, there's a role for every single person. If you think about it the way you think about leadership, there's a role for every single person that's beyond a hierarchy.
0: Yeah. And I think, look, as long as people, as soon as human beings started getting together, human beings started creating cultural expectations. And cultural expectations are so strong, right? They're way more powerful than rules and policies and procedures. So right. as soon as humans started getting together in groups, and this is what, 10, 20, 30,000 years ago. Yeah. As soon as that happened, two things start to occur Anytime you try put a group of people together. One, rules and policies, procedures, laws, cus- whatever you call it, start to be created. Spoken and unspoken. The unspoken version is culture. So not only do rules get created, as soon as human beings come together in a group, but cultural expectations get created. And I think what's so interesting in my work is, or this is what is interested and driven a lot of my work to me, is how much more powerful cultural expectations are in driving behavior than rules are. Because everyone knows you can break a rule. There's sort of an unspoken understanding that as long as you don't go past a certain level, everyone's going to forgive you. The example I like to use is that I'm doing a speech and if if I show up at the speech and tell people that I got a speeding ticket on the way there, they don't think less of me as a person, right? But if I showed up to the speech without pants, their opinion of me changes rapidly and in a negative way. But speed limits are a law and they exist because they save lives. The fact I'm supposed to wear pants, that I'm supposed to wear a shirt, let alone a shirt and a vest to do this interview, we made that up. But the pushback from violating the expectation is so much more powerful than violating the
1: rule, right? Well, I'll tell you, I read an article recently about how influencers are now struggling to find a way forward because they're so exhausted. Because the way you've got influence these days is to do something outrageous. It may be outrageously good. It may be, but most of the time, you know, it's just outrageous, period. It's just in rage and gendery <laughs> or whatever. But the article was like, God, there, a lot of influencers are questioning the road that they're on because they just can't keep ratcheting up the amplifying what they're doing. It just takes too much energy.
0: Yeah. and And I wonder too, is it the amplification or this is worth thinking of too, for everyone listening, because I just found this out last week and it blew my mind. It reframes how I think of everything, especially influencers. Okay. Is that, you know how we mentioned like we all started getting together in in groups of humans, what, 20, 30,000 years ago? I mean, there's all kinds of different arguments is when you want to call it. But we gathered in small groups for most of human history. And our brain that we use now to try to function in this world is still mostly the brain that's designed to work in that world. Because, you know, uh, social and technological evolution happens way faster than physiological evolution. So someone pointed out to me the other day that one of the challenges are like oh this is an epidemic of depression an epidemic of mental health problems and they pointed out well our brain has an empathy bank that is capable of worrying about 300 people give or take because that's about how big human civil like human settlements got all like when we were based subsistence off the land about 300 people at most right so our Empathy bank, our ability to feel connected to other people in a way that makes us want to care for them, we can handle about 300 and we can handle only about a dozen super tight. But now, guess what's happening? We're living in a world where we have to worry not just about the homeless people on the streets of our city. We also have to worry about the, this is just a number of examples, right? But I also, I'm finding that. They're finding the bodies of young children at uh, residential schools here in Canada, young indigenous children, mass mm-hmm. graves. That hit and every Canadian. This is me as a Canadian speaking. If that did not shake you to your core, but now we're now I'm thinking about that. Now I'm thinking about the homeless in my community. I'm thinking about what's going on in many parts of Africa in terms of famine, in terms of drought. I'm worried about what's going on in terms of how climate change is impacting certain places more than others. I'm absolutely heartbroken over what's going on in the Ukraine. When you see young people showing up in their prom dresses at their bombed out school, the problem is our brain is not designed to handle empathy, concern, and love for millions of people at the same time. And I'm not being dark. I'm not being, I'm just saying we're hardwired physiologically to not be able to handle this much human empathy. And it overwhelms us and you know we talk about how many of the things we struggle with living in this world has everything to do with the fact that we're trying to do it with a brain and an emotional system that still has not evolved of us living in a massively interconnected planet with millions if not billions of people and being aware of the things that they succeed with and the things that hurt them we're not our brain is not able to deal with the fact that millions of people are hurting every day. And that's hard as a result. It also means that we're constantly trying to adapt our behavior to live in a world that our brain is and our body is not actually physically set up for. That's why a lot of my work is, okay, let's acknowledge the innate behaviors and instincts that we have and how they're maladapted to this world so we can forgive ourselves a little bit when it doesn't seem like we can control our emotions. Of course you can't. You're not supposed to. Like You're supposed to feel afraid. It kept you alive for 20,000 years. You're supposed to feel jealous. It kept us alive for 20,000 years. Unfortunately, the last 500 or so, yeah, emotions that hijack rational thought aren't really that well adapted to a much more evolved technological and social world. So I think we always have to factor that in when we talk about leadership, is that I'm trying to go back to what our brain is hardwired for, which is recognizing that our biggest impact is on the individuals we actually see every day. So how do we manage to live a village world in a wildly interconnected internet world at the same time, right? So how do we mix those two things together? And how do you forgive yourself for setting boundaries on your empathy bank? I mean, I don't know how you do it. I mean, you're identifying the fact that there's cynicism in the world and there's darkness in the world, even in your intro, the world is still a good place. The world is still an amazing place. you know what made us stop thinking that is how much broader our knowledge was of what other people were facing and so what we need to try to be able to do is forgive ourselves for the fact that we have a physical intellectual and emotional capacity cap on how much we can care and i think i hope no one's like oh my god no that's an unlimited how much you can care yet no there's not and Everyone I know who has not been able to come to grips with the fact that we're not capable of caring for everything really struggles. Our ability to say, I wanna care about everything. I wanna make a difference everywhere. I wanna have impact every opportunity I can it's such a noble thing to do. However, it can destroy you. And I think it's important to go into your efforts to make the world better with an inherent forgiveness for the fact that you will be ignoring someone who needs you. And I think what's why influences are burning out is that every day they get up and they don't have anyone that they're serving. They have everyone that they're trying to serve.
1: So so I think that leads me back to your quintessential message in the book, day one, is that, yes, we cannot affect a world full of billions of people and 8 billion versions of reality and 8 billion problems, but we can affect the person that's standing in front of us, the window washer, the person who's serving us our coffee in some extraordinary way, the TSA agent who's making a long line entertaining. We can do that in the moment. We can, the little kid that's lost. We can figure out a way to, to, I mean, there are just so many things that we can do.
0: And it's not little because it's only one person. I think that's what gets it. Like, why bother? Because it's just one. And that I think is what our brain starts to go. It's the same way, way when I, I quit drinking, right? I'm a recovering alcoholic. So the idea that sometimes slips into our brain as a in recovery is why, not, why bother fighting not to have a drink today? You're just going to screw up a thousand days from now because there's so many days left. So why does this matter? And that's why in recovery, they teach you to focus only on day one. This is the first day of a recovery. The last 2000 days don't matter. The next 2000 days don't matter. All your mind has to deal with is your ability to control the one thing. Today, do you have a drink? And I started to realize leadership's the same way, is that there are so many people in the world, we can come to believe that if we're not impacting hundreds of thousands or millions at the same time, that we're not actually making a difference. But I say that in the book, I say it in my TED talk, like there is no world, there's just 8 billion understandings of it. And so leadership is about changing people's understanding of the world in an individual moment, their understanding of how many people care about them, what they're capable of, and how big an agent for change they can be in this world and in their own life. We have minimized that. We have made it seem like it's not important that leadership is things that you acquire over time. It doesn't exist in individual moments. The individual moment stuff is just what nice people do. But leaders, they do stuff that occurs over time. They earn accolades and achievements over time. They earn titles over time. And You're my argument that's that that's the social that's the social yeah. understanding of leadership. But, but what I've it noticed is true. that people don't seem to connect the fact that the things they earn over time are a direct result of what they do in their everyday. Think that it's not the goals you set or the goals you reach; it's how you behave in pursuit of those goals. But if we focus only on the goals and the titles and the accolades that come out of it. People can start to argue to themselves that how I behave to get these collective accolades that happen over time is not important. It's the outcome that's important. And my argument is that that causes all kinds of leadership issues, right? Because then people are focusing on where they get to, as opposed to how they behave along the way. But I think that what happens is, is that as the world has become bigger I heard a brilliant thing. Neil deGrasse Tyson pointed this out. He said, as as our sphere of knowledge grows, so too does our circumference of ignorance, which I found interesting, right? And so I I said, yeah, as our circle of knowledge grows, like the universe, it also means that the edge of what we don't know continues to grow bigger. And I started to realize that when I heard that, I started to think maybe part of the reason that really good, amazing people in our jobs, in our communities, in our lives, who we know create amazing moments, the reason that they diminish themselves or they don't see themselves as leaders is because in the grander scheme of how many people are on earth, they don't see their impact as mattering that much. What I try to let people know is that let's slide away all these other people that we use to judge our behaviors who aren't there and instead start to ask ourselves, how is this impacting the people who are there every day? Because... If we start to define leadership as people who can impact the lives and perceptions of hundreds or thousands or millions of people at once, it means the vast majority of people are automatically excluded from the definition of leadership, which benefits the people who have the title. And they're never going to change that perception. Or very few people will work to change that perception once it benefits them. And so I'm trying to let people know that it's so easy to feel like you're nothing in the grander scheme of the world and the universe, but you're not. That that one app that seems so insignificant in the grander scheme of the universe, and hell, every time you look at that web telescope, we keep reminding ourselves that we seem insignificant. But like people remember. I was at a conference, and it was really transformative. I went to a high school student conference. I don't get to do that very much. I got priced out of, the, out of that sort of realm. But every now and then, once or twice a year, I go back, and I try to speak to a high school group. And this group was so inspiring. They were so supportive of one another and started to realize that they thought that because they were young, they were training one day to to make a difference. And I think their teacher made them realize how much and how much of what they did to this world they were just dismissing as unimportant because each of these students went around and told their teacher that when the pandemic first started, she brought them quilts, customized quilts, like where she'd given thought to the color and to what was on them. I don't even, I don't know if she made them, but she brought them all quilts. And each student went around and talked about how their individual quilt they'd been given by this teacher. And she had driven to their houses and dropped them off, right? Now, one student said, I never thought of myself as a I think she said, a salmon colored person until you gave me a quilt. And I realized that that is my color. And all these students went around and talked about how this gesture in and of itself and the quilts themselves had had an impact on them and made them learn things about themselves. And the teacher didn't remember doing it. And all these, every single one of those students went around and had a specific thing about the act that had changed them. And maybe they hadn't thought about it every day, but as soon as one student mentioned it, all the others, and that, that teacher had no recollection of that moment. None. And, now, and then she was reminded and said, oh my God, yeah, I remember that. But
1: we need to way. understand,
0: like that lasts forever in the minds of those people. You didn't have to change 10,000 people's minds in a superfluous way. What you needed to do was change one person's understanding of the world in a profound way. And we've waxed poetic on a bunch of topics here, but my goal is to, my goal is to make it less of an accident when we do that. Like we all live our values. If you're good people, whenever you get the chance, like it's just, Oh, here's a chance to be kind. Here's a chance to be empowering. Here's a chance to demonstrate courage, right? That's awesome. But my work is about how do we create those moments intentionally? You know what I mean? It's, Good leaders live their values whenever they get the chance, and great leaders create those opportunities. So we have so many good individual moments of impact we can create every day, but we get distracted. How is it that if we recognize leadership exists in moments of impact, how do we create them more consciously? How do we not make it an accident? How do we only do it when we get the chance? How do we do it every day we get up and say, I'm going to do this today? And then how do we trick our brain into not getting distracted in the process?
1: I think it's also a lovely, you have a lovely rap on the fact that leadership is, there's something fundamental about recognizing what you do in the world and its potential there. You tell a great story about bus drivers and how the school bus drivers have, so you got to really think about this. The school bus driver probably doesn't really think of themselves as a leader in the school. But gosh, when you think about the consistency of contact that most kids have, with somebody in the school, and they're going to have a lot more consistency of contact with the school bus driver than they ever are the principal yeah. or people in the leadership. And I think that this is, this gets to the heart fundamentally about leadership versus you have a great rap about the difference between leadership and catalyst. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, I've always been
0: fascinated by the word catalyst, eh? When I learned it, I think it was in grade 10 bio and my teacher's up there talking about what a catalyst is something that doesn't necessarily have any power on its own, but when added to the right things, unleashes power that wouldn't be present without it. And so it's not the catalyst in and of itself that's responsible. What it does is it allows other things to release their power. And I love that concept. I didn't realize at the time how much I wanted, like I didn't study leadership at the time. I just thought, isn't there something great about the fact that there exists something in the world whose only job it is, is to unleash the power of other elements in the world. And later on, you start to realize, oh, wow, that really is what leadership is all about. And so the idea is, as a leader, as I define it, is an individual whose skills or insights or simple presence enables other things to happen that would not have happened without them there. And I started to realize as I was looking for the title for my new job, okay, I'm the chief catalyst. My job is not to necessarily do things in and of itself. My job is to be the thing you add to unleash other people's power. And that means that every leader, as I define it, individuals who try to close the gap between who they want to be and how they're actually behaving, every leader is a catalyst, right? Every leader, by definition in my world, is a catalyst, but not every catalyst
1: is a leader. Here's what I want to get to, because I think it's at the core of your message, So if we're on thoughtful and if we're on just being the best person we're capable of being, I love your six points that you hold yourself to. Okay. So, so this is at the essence, I think of where we're at here in this conversation is there are a lot of ways that we can impact others good and bad, but so much is out of our control, except (laughs) for your six, what do you call them? You refer to these six Things that you question yourself to. Okay.
0: Yeah, I, we call it the leadership test, or I call it the leadership test. I didn't call that the book because here's the thing. People hate tests so much that no. my editor suggested I don't use the term. And uh, like, words are so powerful, right? And the word test has a really negative connotation because for all of you listening out there, every test you wrote for like the first 20 years of your life was somebody else's test. It was somebody else's questions. They demanded the answers that would make them happy. And you delivered those answers and then you got evaluated and they gave you something that impacted your future, right? Like usually a grade that impacted your opportunities in your future, but it was always somebody else's test. And that's really stressful. It's wildly disempowering, makes nobody like that damn word, which is problematic for me because one thing I've learned since I left school, because tests were the number one source of my personal validation. Like that is where my identity came from is how well I wrote other people's tests. But now I realize the only tests that define who you are as a leader and as a person are the tests you choose to give yourself. And so we have a tool called the leadership test. It's a test I choose to give myself. Everyone in my company is responsible for it as well. And the idea of the leadership test, and the reason it's a test is this, just as a quick little it's a scientific background, tests are composed of questions. What the research shows is that questions are a really powerful driver of human behavior. The human brain does not like unanswered questions, hates them. All of it, like human exploration, uh, folklore, faith, it, it all comes out of one reality. The human brain hates unanswered questions, hates them. The human brain would rather make up a lie, it would rather believe a lie in itself made up than deal with the fact that it does not know the answer to a question. Uh, This is why, when you're trying to remember the name of an actor or an actress, and you can't, and you think you just move on, why 24 to 48 hours later, the name of the actor, the actress, the song, or the movie pops into your head? Because while your conscious brain was allowed to continue on and give up on that question, your subconscious brain was having none of it. It was like, all right, you go work on other stuff, but I'm going to stay on this. And eventually it finds the answer a day later and just fires it into your conscious, like in a massive non sequitur. It's just like, oh, by the way, it was Drew Barrymore. Like, boom, it just throws it in there. And so the fact that if your brain has an unanswered question, it will actually adapt its behavior without your knowledge to find the answer to the question. And so what we did is we identified six core values, and they are impact, growth, courage, empowerment, class, and self-respect. And we created a question to go along with each and every one of those values. And the key was that you can't answer the question without living the value. So for impact, what did I do today to recognize someone else's leadership? All right. That's what we went out every day trying to do. That's how we started it all. Because it's on such a pedestal that if I told you you're a leader, the way you behave, the way you treat others, it's inspired me, right? It makes me want to be better. And that is true. But you can't say that to someone and not have them walk away feeling better off. And because we said impact, our definition of that as a value, and you got to define your values, is a commitment to creating moments that cause people to feel like they're better off for having interacted with you. All right, that's the definition. Well, it's impossible to answer the question, how did I recognize someone else's leadership without creating one of those moments, right? It's on a pedestal. If I told you you're a leader in any way, shape, or form, you're going to walk away feeling better off. So I've created a question that cannot be answered without living a value that's important to my identity. The key thing is because I made it into a question, what I've actually done is created a situation in my brain where it desperately needs an answer to that question and it will change my behavior to go find one. So now when I see, now when I see the woman at Tim Hortons, sorry, for you folks, at Dunkin' Donuts, when I see the woman at Dunkin' Donuts go above and beyond when nobody is is being kind to her, when everyone just wants their coffee and couldn't give less of a crap a human being is putting up with all of this. When I take a moment or I see her behaving in a way that is above and beyond, instead of being like, oh, that's nice, but you know what? I just want my coffee. I don't really have time to get into a conversation. My brain goes, oh, here's your chance to recognize someone else's leadership. And by the way... I feel really uncomfortable because I haven't done that yet. So if you don't mind doing that right now, I'd appreciate it. And when your brain says, I'd appreciate you doing this, you're going to do it. And sure enough, we tried that one question and all of a sudden we were creating more moments of impact because we had the question. And so what we did is we added a new question every month for an entire school year. And by the end of the year, we've developed this leadership test. Six questions tied to the six values. And so here are the questions quickly. So instead of every day hoping that I lived impact and growth and courage, empowerment, class, and self-respect every day, I got up saying I have these questions and my brain expects to have an answer for these by the end of the day, impact. What have I done today to recognize someone else's leadership growth? What did I do today to make it more likely someone would learn something? And that could be me courage. What did I do today? That might not work, but I tried it anyway. Empowerment. What did I do today to move someone else closer to a goal? which is really important. This was developed in the school world where kids are taught from a young age. You're competing with one another. Don't get someone else today. That's idiotic. So we need to unlearn that. Class is when did I elevate when I could have escalated today? Elevate means trying to succeed in a situation. Escalate means trying to win. One of the things we discovered is our desire to win destroys more opportunities for success. And then it's not the last question. It's the bottom question on the tower. It's the foundational question, which is self-respect as a value, which is a commitment to knowing that when you're empty, you have nothing left to give to other people. And the question is, what did I do today to be good to myself? So those six questions, but here's the important piece that, it, that you're getting like the 60 minutes in two minutes here. The important piece is this, you get up in the morning and you know the questions. Imagine if every day before you go to bed, you have to prove you deserve another day on earth, not at the end of like a quarter or a five-year strategic plan or the end of your life. Every night before you go to bed, you have to prove that tomorrow I get to come back and do this life thing again. You have to get three questions out of six every day to earn another day. Just imagine if that was our reality. If that was, in fact, the reality, the questions would be non-negotiable, right? Imagine if every day before you went to bed, you had to answer three out of six questions in order to wake up again the next day, but you're given the questions in the morning. Like you would make damn sure you answer those questions, but you you don't have to ace them. You don't have to get all six, man. Nobody can get all six every day. You got to get three, three out of six, got to pass the test if that was the case, the questions would be non-negotiable. They would drive our behaviors, they would drive our decision-making, they would drive our priorities every day. And because each one is tied to a value that I truly care about and my company cares about, by setting up that structure, what we're trying to force out of ourselves is a recalibration of our priorities. We're trying to make it so that we prioritize our to-be list at the same level as our to-do list. And I'm not saying your to-be list isn't important because I never get asked back to a company if I did. But what I am saying is that for most of us, most of our lives have been driven more by our to-do list than our to-be list. It's been a long time since we could look and say most of my decisions or priorities on any given day were driven more by who I wanted to be than the crap I had to get done. And I think that we should make commitments to one another. Your to-do list is important. We live in a social world. We have a social contract, right? That we got to make obligations to each other personally and professionally. We got to live up to them. But like, I don't know if every obligation you have in a given day is an obligation to somebody else, you're just living a life of obligation. Like how many of you listening out there, if you really look at the obligations you've created for yourself on a day to look at every obligation you're going to have next week. Are any of them obligations to yourself? And we could argue that picking up the kids is an obligation to yourself because you want to be a good parent. But that's an obligation to your children. And there's nothing wrong with that. I am saying if 100% of your obligations in a given day are obligations to other people, you're living a life of obligation. That is a source of incredible stress. That's, of course, that's so frustrating. That's so alienating. Make 10% of your obligations obligations to yourself. The leadership test to me represents 10% of my daily obligations to get three out of those six questions. And if I'm successful in doing that, I have made sure that I've actually lived my to-be list. But that is is a big piece for me, is I have to be able at the end of the day to say, here are the moments where I was the person that I claimed to be. And if you create 10% of your obligations to yourself, it leaves 90% to the rest of the world. And that's a life of service. And I don't have to tell you that a life of service is different. A life of service is empowering and a life of service is sustainable. Like a life of obligation is not sustainable. That 100% of your obligation to other people, even if you love them more than anything else in the world, will eventually make you feel as if you're living a life of obligation. And nobody is energized for a life of obligation. Like the leadership tests, those questions and the psychology behind them, that is how I say these are my obligations to me. Because, like, let's face it, like one of the crappy things about life is that we're not always in charge of what we get to do every day. but day. We're always in charge of who we are. Like, read Man's Search for Meaning. There's no better, there's no better encapsulation of, of that truth in humans. That people can take from you what you do. They can control what you do. They can limit what you do but they can never fully take away who we are. Only we do that because we forget that we have it and we don't give ourselves evidence of that. But if you get three out of six of those leadership test questions every day, that means that no matter what in your life that was outside of your control blew up in your face, at least you control these three things. And at the end of the day, you can say everything outside of my control exploded on me. But in these three moments, I was the man or the woman or the person that I want to be. And I know a lot of you listening. Some days that's all you get. It doesn't make a bad day into a good day. Like I'm not going to blow that smoke up your butt. It's not like you go home and your cat died and your best friend passed away, like, and that you got fired, and that you could be like, but you lived these three values. Like the day's a success. It is not that day sucked. But if at the end of the day you could say, but in these three moments I was the woman I wanted to be, then it wasn't a waste. And I think that right now. When everything blows up in our face, we look at the day as a waste. And if you string enough wasted days together, you feel as if you don't matter. And the feeling that we don't matter is an extraordinarily dangerous phenomenon. And...
1: Can we take a break and come back and yeah. talk about that? Because yes. that is it's one of my favorite topics that you speak about, Drew, is this question of why we matter.
0: Yeah, and I, I'd love to talk more about it because... Okay. for the last few months, I've come to realize There are some things I need to consider when I ask it, and I haven't been considering
1: it. Okay, great. And, you know, I think it comes into, we've all been through a lot in the pandemic. I'm sure that's informed some of your view, and you and I haven't talked about that in a long time. So let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about why we matter. And also, I want you to share this fabulous little exercise that I caught you mentioning in another interview, your GOAT, greatest of all times exercise that you do with your phone. So- Let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue with Drew Dudley. Hi, Dr. Linda here. Many of you know that the Mothership website of this podcast is called the Goodness Exchange. And there you can find articles, a video library, podcasts, and content collections that point to what's right with the world. You can visit every day, and you'll find the antidote to all the negative noise out there in the world. Okay, that solves the problem in our personal lives. We can choose what to give our attention to every morning and end our day with something positive. But what about our work environments? We need to feel supported and come alive in those cultures, but that's becoming harder and harder when most of us go to virtual work and many of us who are working with others still never have shared positive experiences with our colleagues. By definition, culture comes from shared experience. So. Employees find it harder and harder every day to create an environment that attracts and retains other great people. Well, enter the Goodness Exchange and our extraordinary content, which celebrates an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. My team and I at the Goodness Exchange are making certain that employees of optimistic, values-driven companies have instant access to the positive news out there today, because science is telling us that it's time to start celebrating what's right with the world. And here's the thing, there are so many positive stories out there about astounding solutions to some of our world's biggest problems, about wonders and leaps in human potential, but most are going completely uncelebrated your culture can change that and can be changed by a new focus on goodness and progress. In fact, with all that negative noise out there, your work culture can be infused by a sense of flourishing. People can be sharing ideas and swapping stories of wonderful ingenious solutions around the water cooler again. With instant access to good news, employees can stay on their feet and take turns being the one who makes opportunity at setback. People who use the goodness exchange every day have a spring in their step. They radiate joy and confidence and creativity because they know a far more complete picture of what's going on in the world. If you'd like to chat about infusing the culture where you work with the tone of celebration of goodness and innovation and progress, let's hop on a zoom. You can introduce us to your HR director or your chief of culture. You know, if used consistently, our content can give companies a way to turn something aspirational like positivity into a concrete way of being. Thanks. Talk to us at the Goodness Exchange about change and flourishing where you work. Okay, we're back with Drew Dudley, leadership and leadership educator, someone who has an entirely fresh take On leadership, that I've ever heard. And I am such a fan of Drew's work that I got to show you. I have not one, but two of his books. And you can see how dog eared that one is. And this one is equally. (laughs) That's so cool. Yeah. I kept one at my office for years and years and one at home. And so sometimes I do this funny trick with Drew's book. So here's the book so you can see it. It's called Day One. This is Day One. And it is really a magical book full of stories that you can't unhear in your head and that make you, you know, I tell you, I talked to that window washer the other day because of your story in this book about telling the gal in the grocery store what a good job she was doing when everybody else was giving her a hard time. So what I know about this book, here's how I use it. So I'm having a quandary. Something's preying on my mind. I just crack it open somewhere and then there'll be usually some weirdly annotated, underlined thought like this and I'll read it. And you know what? It not in a spooky way. It just gets my mind thinking in new directions about that problem that I'm preoccupied on, how difficult it would be. So anyway, if you just love a book that's great, bunch of stories that you will walk a little taller from, that's a reason to look at Drew's book. But also it can be a constant reminder about being the best person you can be. And I want to move on to this next concept because it's one of his prime concepts. First of all, talk to us a little bit about GOAT, because I think it leads into this why you matter thing so nicely.
0: Yeah. You know, what's interesting is, so as a speaker, as a writer, as an educator, you develop the things you want to share, and then you want to do it as well as possible. So you can't speak about everything. So over the course of time, you develop two or three or four focal points of your ideas, and you share them with the world. But what started to happen was people would ask me to come back and speak again to the same audience. And I said, well, we're kind of focusing on these presentations and what would you like if you want me to come back because uh, I can't do the same thing? And she said, I read your book and there's a chapter on self-respect and could you just do that? And I thought, I've never even considered that possibility. Like, do you really want me to do a speech just on this stuff on self-respect, this one one of the six values? And they said, sure. And that's how I started to do presentations that focused on individual values within it. And in the case of what you just mentioned, one of the things that I wanted to share with people as part of our self-respect strategy. So I'd love to to speak, share ideas on the overall concept of leadership as impact and the leadership test. When I talk about self-respect specifically, one of the tips I give Is if you want to more effectively answer the question, what did I do today to be good to myself, which is the self-respect question, one of the things to do is to remember that happiness has to be cultivated. And the idea behind happiness has to be cultivated, like so many of the other things in my book and my work in general, is that I'm privileged enough to be given a microphone and audiences pretty regularly and said, please say things. Most people on earth aren't given an hour of people's attention regularly the really cool things I get to do is take brilliant ideas from other people and with their permission, say, would you mind hundreds or thousands of people hearing that really smart thing you just sent to me? And the general concept is, Hey, if I don't have to deliver it, you go right ahead. And one day I was out for a walk with a friend of mine who was in rehab. And I was in one of those moods where you don't want to be in a good mood. Like every time you're struggling with something and your friends and your colleagues are all giving you good advice And they're supporting you, and you just don't want to have any of it. You just want to be mad. And so every good piece of advice, every tactic they suggest, even the good ones, you're like, no, no. You're in a spiral of anger, and you like it, right? It feels good. Anyway, I realized I was doing this while I was walking with someone in rehab. And you know the arrogance and the narcissism necessary to make it about you when you're visiting someone in rehab, about how crappy your life is? And so all of a sudden, that moment, like Roy Kent in, in Ted Lasso, where all of a sudden he just realizes that he's the problem. I'm like, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry to be talking like this. And I just remember her saying, I understand, and I can't help you out today, but I'll tell you something. I know how you feel. I don't have very many good days. And what used to happen is when I had a good day, what I did on the good day was I never, ever allowed myself to think of my bad days. Because who wants to let your bad days sort of horn their way into an otherwise happy moment? So when I had good times, I went to great lengths to keep all negative thoughts away. But now what I realize is when I have a good day, I know that that bad version of myself is coming down the future. I know that it's the majority of my days are bad days. And so instead of just reveling in this tiny little reprieve that I have, when I have that opportunity... I'm going to plant happiness. I'm going to take a moment, just 10 minutes out of my good day and take something from that good day and plant it so that it can be harvested for this pissed off version of me later on. Because when you're feeling like that, you can't turn that frown upside down. You can't find the silver lining. I hate this toxic positivity nonsense, right? Like When you are bad, when you are hurt, you can't just think yourself out of it. That's not how the human mind works. It's not how emotions work. But let's recognize that. So when you have a good day, do something for this version of yourself that you can easily use to celebrate. And I always give this strategy, this little tip in the speech about how she taught me that. And one of the examples of what I do, for instance, all of my PowerPoint presentations have photographs of the best moments of my life in them, because I have to have that PowerPoint behind me five days a week. Why not have it include things in my workday that make me happy? And one of the things, because not everybody does PowerPoints every day of their life, one of the things I suggested, and I did this during the pandemic, is go back to the first photographs you ever took in your phone. I have over 21,000 now, but I went back to the first ones and just started scrolling through. And what happens is every now and then as you're scrolling through, you come across one that really, really impacts you emotionally. It doesn't have to be a great photo. It can be the memory of you taking it. It could be the people you were there with. It could be a million things. But different photos will have a powerful emotional connection. And I can't tell you how you know, but you know. What happens is, go through, and every time you come to one of those photos, because most of the photos on your phone you never looked at after you took them. When you see one that just makes you feel that, oh yeah, put it in a separate folder. Create a new folder on your phone. I call mine the goat, the greatest of all time. I went back, and started scrolling through 21,000 photos. And every time one had an emotional impact on me, I put it in a special folder called the goat folder. I did that on my good days. On my bad days, when I'm feeling crappy, I open up the goat folder. I find one of those photos and I text it to the person that connects me to it, to the friend who was there or the friends who were there. And then that means that randomly in the middle of the day, they get a text of something I hope that makes them feel the same way I do. And I just say, hey, was thinking about you, wish that we were here. And if you've ever gotten one of those texts randomly, someone saying, I was thinking about you, not in a bad way, but just randomly, I thought of you today and it made my day better. It changes you that day. It is a reminder of what you're connected to in the world, but it also makes you, the sender, feel that too. Because you see the response your friend gives you. And the thing is, when you're feeling crappy, you won't go through that extra effort of finding a good photo. But if you do it when you're already having a good day and they're just sitting there waiting for you basically the little buttons that you can push to feel a little bit better like an endorphin you got it on your phone and honestly it can take hours to do it right because you just go back and start like you can do a thousand photos and go back and do it every time you have a good day find those goat photos the ones that when you look at them remind you of how lucky you are make sure you have photographs that remind you what you're connected to in your line of sight every day because I remember telling people I started off the tip by saying cultivate happiness and for what it's worth I now have amended it because what I used to say to people after telling that little section was if you go to work every day and you don't have the photograph of someone you love hanging from your rearview mirror or your dashboard you're missing an easy opportunity for to feel happiness for one moment every day So you should do that. But early on after creating that speech, I took an Uber to give the speech in the first two or three times I gave it. This was early on in its genesis. And my Uber driver had a photograph of her daughter, two photographs of her daughter stuck to the dashboard. And of course I was like, I'll see how smart I am. And I said, yeah, I do a speech about that. And I say that that gives you a moment of happiness every day, doesn't it? And she looked over my shoulder and was like, yeah, so you don't have kids, do you? And I said, what do you mean? She goes, yeah, sometimes the people you love, you don't like them very much. When I look at her, it doesn't always bring me happiness. But every time I look at her, it reminds me I'm connected to something bigger in this world. And that gives me strength. And strength is more useful than happiness most days. But I do know that I'm never happy when I don't feel strong. And so I've now amended it to say strength has to be cultivated. I don't know about all you listening, but she really hit me with that when she said, I could use strength a lot more than I could use happiness most days. And the idea of reminding ourselves that to which we are connected, that brings us strength, I think is incredible. I used to be a music producer and a woman came in and and, and sang a song in our studio once. And to this day, I remember the lyrics. And she said, there's a difference between grounded and running to the ground. And some things keep you rooted and some just weigh you down. And you have to decide what you'd rather keep around. So what's so good about safe and sound? But the phrase, some things keep you rooted, and some just weigh you down, and you have to decide what you'd rather keep around. Every relationship in our lives, and relationships aren't just with people, they're with places, they're with jobs, they're with, like, they're with towns where we live. Like, to take a step back and look at every relationship in your life, and put it into one of two categories. Is this keeping me grounded or is this weighing me down? That my friend is one crazy personal development activity. Like every single relationship with your job, with all the individual people in your life, romantic friendship, family, and then saying, is this keeping me grounded? Does it give me strength? Does it give me stability? Does it give me hope? And does it give me respect? Or is this weighing me down? Is this something that's in my life because it makes other people more okay with the decisions I make and who I am? That, those two things right there, the difference between strength and happiness and the ability to create it for yourself, I think are really, really important pieces.
1: I think you're so right. You're making me think back to a an interview I did with amazing woman who, then we're going to have this in the show notes. Anything Drew and I are talking about is going to be in the show notes on the website at the Goodness Exchange. You won't find it in the show notes at Libsyn or Spotify or, I mean, Spotify or, Apple, but on the Good News Exchange article, you'll find all these links. So there's a wonderful woman who I interviewed who is all about self-image. And she makes this very good point that goes right along with that, Drew. This does it make you stronger, not necessarily happier. And she is asking us all to look at the people we that we allow to influence us, look at the people we follow and say, now, do I come away f- with from my interactions with that influencer feeling good about myself or not. She's particularly into body image. And one day she just started looking at all the people she was following and how they were making her not feel good about herself because she's a robust woman. And so she was just like unfollow, 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 unfollow. And she tells us that is one way of controlling our incoming in this crazy world of our digital lives that is always sort of like comparison without context. Like that person might be a size two, but did they even eat this week? All right. Um, I have to interject here just because, and I don't want to stop your flow because I know that there's, this goes into how you've come through this in your own mind's eye. But I do want to say, I think that that part of the equation here, I've noticed we do one article after another, after another about people who are doing good things in the world, large and small at the goodness exchange and, or these interviews we do on the podcast, and they don't share them. We are always surprised at how finally someone who's turned themselves inside out to make the world a better place for others gets somebody to shine a light on them, us, but they don't share that we've written the article about them and they don't share that we've done the podcast interview. And it makes us crazy because we need people's help to lift that version of ourselves up. But we've realized that there is this incredible taboo about being humble Mm -hmm. and so a lot of times it's this and like we almost believe the narrative that there could be somebody sitting right in front of you who does the world of good for the food pantry or the humane society or any number of things but if you ask them why they matter this need to be humble is driven so deep in our psychology that it overrides our being able to recognize what we're uniquely built to contribute
0: without a doubt and I think it's important to recognize that the phenomena you just identified, while I think universal, also impacts one half of our, or one large portion of our society more than the others. It impacts women more than men. You hit on something there when it comes to humility as a, humility as a value. And part of my work is you have to define values or you can't live with them. Like you can't use them if you can't define them. Otherwise they're just words, right? And it, it got me thinking about humility because one question I ask at the beginning of speech is, is how many of you are comfortable calling yourself a leader? people won't put up their hand. And it's because we have had the idea of humility as a virtue hammered into us. Cool, right? Because people don't like individuals who are not humble. But I think one thing we have to acknowledge is that what we've ended up teaching is that humility means denying what makes you awesome so that other people aren't uncomfortable around you. All right, other people don't feel intimidated by you. Tap down what makes you amazing deny what makes you amazing so other people are more okay with you. This hits women harder, I also think, because women also have to balance the idea that the idea of humility is that people get upset if you make them feel threatened or uncomfortable. As such, be humble, deny things that other people could perceive as a threat or that you're better at than them. For women who have had to navigate their entire lives knowing that not only is it negative to make men feel insecure, it can be dangerous to make men feel insecure, right? So it becomes even stronger with women who, whether they've been explicitly taught it or not, or they learn it from their lived experience, making a man feel threatened or like they're not as good as you can have negative, not just negative career consequences, social consequences, physical consequences. And so it's a cultural expectation that people will deny what makes them great. For what it's worth, if you're listening, especially if you are raising young kids, especially young women, Humility is not denying what makes you amazing. Humility is recognizing that what makes you amazing doesn't make you better than other people. And we need to teach that. I really think we need to teach that. Because right now, humility means deny what makes you extraordinary. Humility should never make you deny what makes you extraordinary. What you have to do is recognize that what makes you extraordinary does not make you better than other people. That's what's holding people back, is because the people you want to showcase have been taught from a very young age. If you celebrate this stuff, if you say it in front of other people, they will like you less. And if they're good, genuine, awesome people, they would rather good things happen than they get credit for it. But all of you out there who are raising kids, if you ever see them deny what makes them great in the in order to make other people more comfortable with them, If you can make that distinction for them to be like, look, you should be humble. That will make your life easier. But humility is not denying what makes you great. It's recognizing that what makes you great doesn't make you better than anyone else that you spend time with. That's a hard lesson to learn. But I think if we can embrace that definition and we can teach that definition, I think we can change some things, particularly for the young women in our lives.
1: Okay. So this is a lovely way to sort of go in the direction of wrapping up. Let's talk about children and leadership. Maybe, maybe children and introverts. Mm. Because I think that start with whatever whatever you want. You know, I've got a daughter who's a has a fantastic mind, but she's very much an introvert. And my husband and I are both very verbose people. And it's been a hard parenting journey because we're always like, speak up or stepping on her toe when somebody asks her a question and she answers with one word. But She's listening and she's assimilating what she's hearing. And then she'll say the darndest things. So talk to us about how everyday leadership is important for parents and introverts. Talk to us about those two, because our work groups are filled with introverts who, are, who their ideas are not coming to the top because we're all talking so much. Our children need support, no matter how their chemistry is lined up and who knows what they have to contribute. Go in either direction.
0: Yeah. Let's start with kids. I think the first thing we need to acknowledge is that the education system is the most liberating, empowering, valuable system that we have. It can also be among the most dangerous because it teaches people how to think about the world and their place within it. And at the same time as it's doing that, it also immediately begins ranking them. And you can tell people whatever you want. But how old is a student before they start to realize, why are they grading us if it isn't to rank us? And why would they rank us if it's not to make sure the people at the top get something the people at the bottom don't get? There is no reason to grade people except to rank them. And once you start ranking people, you can say whatever the hell you want about education being about growing as a person. And it doesn't matter. You're ranking people. You're giving them numbers. And in the States with the standardized testing, it's even worse. And so Inherent in the system in which people are learning who they are, is they're also at the same time being taught they're competing with one another. And that is a very dangerous type of situation. And teachers know this. And I want to be very clear. If a system is deeply flawed, you do not need to have bad people in the system for it to continue to be a bad system. Great people can exist in a flawed system and the system will perpetuate itself. Mm -hmm. Teachers know this. Most teachers don't like the type of thing I'm talking about here. With kids, the first thing that we have to be able to let them know is that let your children know as best you can that they should work incredibly hard to make their grades extraordinary because let's not blow smoke up anyone's butt, right? Mm -hmm, Your grades will open doors for you. Your grades will kick down doors for you. Mm -hmm. However, your transcript is an incredibly important part of your kid's life, but it's not a measure of their worth as a human being. So first thing I would say, and like, we could talk about this for hours, but let me do the simplify, boil it down. Say this to your kids and mean it and reinforce it by the questions you ask about their educational experience. I want you to work incredibly hard to make your grades extraordinary. They'll open doors for you. They'll kick down doors for you. I want to know that you work at every level to make your grades the best they can be. And then I want you to work twice as hard to make sure they are the least impressive thing about you. That's what you, That's what mom, that's what dad's. That. that's what uncle, that's what, whatever your role is in a young person's life, that's what I want from you. I want you to work incredibly hard to make your grades extraordinary, and I want you to work twice as hard to make them the least impressive thing about you. And that, however, if all you ask is how you did on the test, if all you ask is did you win, if all you ask is what was the grade on the essay, no. The questions are, what did you learn today? Who did you help today? How did you answer any of those six questions today? How did you elevate instead of escalate today? How did you change how someone felt about themselves today? These are all incredibly valuable dinner table questions. Like what you ask your kids after school is just as important as what they're asked in school because what you follow up on lets them know what you value in terms of their education. And so it's so crucial to ask more than what did how did you do on the test? What are your grades? Are you ready for your SAT? What school do you want to go to? What do you want to do when you grow up? Somehow, what do you want to do when you grow up became, how do you want to get paid? All right. Nobody knows the answer to that when they're 19 years old. I hope not anyway. But that's what I say with kids is that we promote what we permit. And if you let them step on other people's throats so that they can get into that college, they're never going to stop doing that the rest of their lives. The questions you ask them about what they're taking out of their lived experience tells them what you value in terms of their lived experience. So ask them more than what their grades are and where they want to go to school. Ask them who they changed. As oh, hell, man, I should write down like 15 questions to ask your kids every night. This is like my next new, like little booklet. As for introverts, I will say this.
1: Okay. Hey, we, before we move on out to oh, here, let's you and I go on a little personal, of personal escapade. Mm -hmm. This is something, as soon as I started the Goodness Exchange many years ago in 2013, I started to realize, of course, I was just an ordinary person. I was a dentist. I knew how to use the internet like anybody else. And this, we can go into that another day, how I
0: ended up. I like how you went and got a job that requires like nine years of post-grad education. And you're like, I'm just a normal person. I'm a dentist, like, (laughs) which is harder to get into than med school, but whatever.
1: (laughs) Well, the thing was, I watched how people, how little we knew about what was good in the world in those first few years. And one day I said this to myself and I even made a like a greeting card with it. This is the picture on the front. Okay. So That's my son. This is the thank you card that I send to people. And this came out of my brain one time. So this is the personal mission you and I can go on together. I said, I can imagine a world when you ask someone, what do you do? they understand you to mean, what do you do for others? And in that world, almost everyone would have something to say. It's a good world. Through This world could be taught to first graders. Yeah. And we say, what do you do? A first grader could know that that means, what do you do for others? So I love this. I love this rap about kids and the choices we have about helping them decide what to value. So thank you for just going on that rep. I'm gonna make That's sure no what you just said is part of a video series. Okay, so just saying, I've been with you on getting awesome. kids to understand why they matter. So talk to us about introverts.
0: Introverts and leadership. I think the way I define leadership, which is it, a leadership exists in the individual moments of interpersonal impact. And leadership is striving to close the gap between the person you want to be in terms of which of those behaviors you want to engage in and how you're actually behaving. That gap exists for all of us. I think trying to close it a little bit every day is leadership. Unfortunately, the challenge is it's never going to be fully closed and it sucks to get up every day and engage in a really tough fight that you know you will never win. But there's a lot of nobility and honor in fighting it every day. And the process of fighting it every day, most of the other stuff in your life gets better. Now, if we look at leadership as about interpersonal impact, what I love about that is that I hope it shows introverts that they engage in just as much leadership behavior as the people they intrinsically would have been taught to think of as leaders, which means extroverts. People who like to be the center of attention. However, the first examples we give people to explain an idea. So when you want to explain a new concept to someone, particularly young people, the best way we do it is we give examples of the concept. That's how you explain to someone. Now, what I think we need to pay closer attention to, or that to which we need to pay closer attention, you can tell I dated an English PhD, is (laughs) the fact that the first example you give to someone to explain an idea not only does it shape how they think about that idea for the rest of their lives, it limits how they think about that idea for the rest of their lives. And so when we use examples of leaders as presidents, prime ministers, people who conquered empires, scientific groundbreakers, what happens is those people tended to be high-profile, center of attention, extroverts. And when the first examples we use of leaders are all extroverts, It makes everybody, young introverts and extroverts both, even if they don't know which they are yet, it makes them associate them with extroversion. So if all the examples don't look anything like you and don't behave like you, you are immediately going to say to yourself, okay, that is not a realm for me. However, if we look at leadership as individual moments of impact, I think we need to recognize something about introverts. They are, on the whole, more emotionally intelligent than extroverts. We extroverts, although I am now borderline extrovert, I used to be hardcore and now it's moved back a little. We often think out loud, which means we take up space in meetings all the time, right? You watch that today. An introvert would think carefully to your question and give you a 30 second answer. I take four minutes to think through what I think out loud, which has its own benefits and its own drawbacks, right? But it also means introverts in the same meeting have nowhere near the space that I start chewing up. Introverts, however, are so emotionally intelligent. Their ability to connect with people on -on one-on-one situations are often better than extroverts because extroverts, our focus is on the interaction, not necessarily the people within it. And that's not because we are not empathetic. It's not because we don't care. It's simply the way that we gather information. We gather information by actively like sending things out in the world and having it bounce back like a bat, like radar. All right, out it goes. And then we take the information back. Do people nod? Do they like what they're seeing? Introverts don't. Introverts do that in here. And then they put it out in the world and they assess people's reaction. So they create and then assess wherein we create through our assessment. Totally different way of looking at the world. But when the focus is on the interaction, it's not on the person. For introverts, they're focused on the person. Now, if you have a higher level of emotional intelligence, and we define leadership as creating moments that impact other people positively, it, introverts are so good at coming up with ways of impacting people emotionally. Like they, they are often the ones who have the meetings after the meetings. Like a really rough meeting happened, and then they go around afterwards like, hey, you okay? Oh my God, Linda was such today. Without a doubt, I think she was out of line. But I do know that Linda's got some stuff going on at home, and I'm not saying it excuses what she's... We have these people in our lives, right? They are usually the quiet people, and because they do not like emotional upheaval, and they stay quiet through it. Here's my thing to all of you introverts. If we understand that leadership exists in creating moments of interpersonal impact, you by virtue of the fact that you usually have higher levels of empathy, emotional intelligence, and you focus more on other people and what they say as opposed to what you want to say. Not because what you want to say is important. It's because you don't think through saying things. You think in your head. Don't forget, the extroverts give us a little bit of patience. It's not that we want you to hear everything we think. It's we haven't figured out what we think until we say it. But You are so well-equipped to create those types of moments. You see them better. You understand them better. You see people's needs better. You assess people's hurt better. So for all of you out there who turned off the idea of leadership because you were taught or you took in passively what we do teach without meaning to, that leadership needs you to be the center of attention. You don't. Leadership needs you to be the center, needs someone to be the center of your attention. Leadership isn't being the center of attention. Leadership is making someone else the center of your attention. If you can do that, and I tell you, all you introverts out there, you are better equipped for that than many of us extroverts are. So when we redefine leadership, we could better understand where your role is within it. If you go with the definition you were given, a lot of you introverts will be like, that's not for me. I'm asking you to think about leadership in interpersonal impact. And you're better at that than most of us. You really are. And so please we need you to step up and actually make impact while we're making noise. And I would like a copy of that so I can repeat
1: it. It was beautiful. And it's a call to action. It's such a call to action. And thank you so much for putting it so succinctly. All right. There's one last comment that we've got to record something about here for everyone, because it is something that I use. I use almost every single day. All right. I love your distinction asking us, to pay attention to whether we are escalating or elevating. Since the day you said that to me, you spoke to my office, my dental office one time, so kindly just way early in the development of our friendship. I think you could, you could probably just see that if you got 17 people to think about anything, you might get something good going on in St. Albans, Vermont. But I tell you, it's been a foundational concept in our culture, in our office culture, ever since drew it's this notion of will the next words out of my mouth escalate the drama or elevate everyone to a better position that we can all work from with some wisdom and grace we always are challenging each other to either ask es- are you escalating or elevating talk yeah. to us about this you
0: know what it's so odd you ask about that last night i went to a very special wedding I mean, weddings are great, but every now and then you go to one and you're just like, oh, wow. And this was for a former student. And it's the student. I went to the wedding of the person who taught me that last night, I guess is my long story short. It's a young guy named Hamza. And at the age of 21 years old, here's the problem with Hamza. You're, you feel better that there's a person like him in the world. At the same time, you're mildly annoyed that there's a person like him in the world because you're so far from that person. And uh, they remind you of it. But he was dealing with an adult problem when he was still a student of mine years ago. And I define an adult problem as one of these. You have two choices. One that allows you to get what you want. And the other that allows you to be the person that you want to be. And they are mutually exclusive. This is an adult problem. And he had been going back and forth on it for most of the week. And uh, when he finally sorted it out, I was really proud with how he handled it like it was so much more mature than his age and really than people twice his age would do and i told him so and it was him who first said to me i was just trying to elevate the situation instead of escalate it and i asked him what the difference was and it's one of those things that's interesting because i don't think he knew it at the time until someone asked you to articulate your own ideas which is why i love doing podcasts Is that you can think something, but until someone says why, how, where, you don't even realize where it came from. But he said, I guess elevating the situation means I really want us to succeed. Escalating it means I want to win. And that, it came from a 20 or 21-year-old student who has grown into into that type of brilliance. He continues to do it. Now he's a professional speaker as well. Talks about burnout. But it came from him. And I remember there's a, this is an aside. I don't know why. and You can cut it out if you want. He was a student, a business student, like clearly an entrepreneur was going to build great things, but also a mind that wanted to make the world better. And so you kind of feel like they're going to make a choice at some point. You go down the dark path, which is about, do we build the multimillion dollar company and the inevitable sort of compromises people tend to make, or do you stick with You know, I want to make the world a better place. And just, he's grown into a man who chose to keep making the world a better place. But I remember once I showed him something from a movie called The Gambler. And I'm sorry, that thing is blinking there. And in The Gambler, a guy, John Goodman, it's a terrible movie. It's terrible. But there's one good scene where he says, he talks about what he calls the FU position, which is the goal of every person, right? It's to put $2 million in the bank, own your house, own your car. And that's your fortress of solitude. Because once you have two million bucks in the bank and you own your house and you own your car, nobody can tell you to do something you don't want to do. It's the FU position. And last night I sat at a wedding and he was marrying someone who made him better and stronger. He was marrying into a family who had lost their mother and had come closer together as a result. He had his brothers and his sisters step up and talk about how he made them want to be better people and how they had his back for the rest of their life. He surrounded himself at this wedding only with people who made him better. And I remember thinking, as I walked up to him at the end, I said, I misled you, my friend. I told you about the FU position once. And now I look around the room and I realize, no, this is the FU position. When no matter what happens in the world, there is a group of people around you who will not let you fall, who will not let you forget your values, and who will not let you do anything but elevate instead of escalate. And it was so cool at 45 years of age, that little piece I'd always sent people as sort of a business philosophy, I realized how wrong it was. He surrounded himself with the right people who believed in the right things. And one of them was him. That is the FU position. Because for the rest of your life, you have everything you need to tell anybody to get the heck out of your space and will never force you to do something you don't want to do because that's what you have around you. People who believe, people who empower, people who will protect you that's that position. And that's the person who taught me, elevate, don't escalate. And I know we sort of veered off from the elevate, don't escalate thing, but I just, I was at his wedding last night and that was a really big moment for me to sit back and be like, he has the fortress of solitude now. What he created was support, not money, support.
1: I got to tell you, Drew, now, just so people know if they see me looking down, I have now five pages that look like this. I'm keeping track of timestamps where Drew is giving us some things to think about that we can revisit over and over again. So eventually there'll be a library on the Goodness Exchange where you can find Drew's work and there'll be this interview and other wonderful things that he thinks about in this world that, you know, just open up fresh possibilities, new places for us all to walk and try. And not all of them are going to suit our particular steps, but I tell you, Drew, this has been an an amazing interview and I'm so, so, I'm so grateful that for all the times that you've shared your insights with me and the Goodness Exchange community, and we're going to keep on creating things together that are fresh and give people new ways to look at the everyday quandaries so that we can all be everyday leaders. Amazing.
0: Do you want me to change that as we wrap up so it's not there or do we want to call? No,
1: we're perfectly, there's almost nothing that could affect this interview or the conversation that we're going to continue to have negatively. So thank you so much. Drew, we're going to put a lot of things in the show notes here that people can find there, but tell us right off where people can connect with you. And I really want to encourage people to, to look up Drew's book. You know, if you are part of leadership teams or people that are decision makers in the place that you work, Invite Drew to to speak to your group because he brings things to the table that can set teams of people on fire, just on fire of possibility, because he tends to to drop things into our awareness that brings us to our better selves. That's the gist of your work in my estimation. Is that we you can acknowledge all our flaws. Gosh, can we talk about flaws? We could do a whole other episode on flaws. But what you ask us to do is to think about the best person we can be as often as we can. And then also, I just want to wrap up here saying, I'm telling you the six things that he talks about. He asked the six questions, the test that he asks himself every night, try and be able to tap into three of those every day in your life will work no matter what your circumstances are.
0: Hey, check, check, recognize someone else's leadership and take care of yourself. Do self-respect and impact. Just do that one for 30 days, folks. Like just get one out of two of those questions every day and just start momentum. Because I will Love tell that. you, five year momentum is way more important than five year plans.
1: Oh, that is so great. Okay. So where do you, where can people
0: connect with you? DrewDudley.com, D-R-E-W, D-U-D-L-E-Y.com. That's where everything is. I'm on almost all social media except for Twitter now at day one Drew. D-A-Y-O-N-E-D-R-E-W. So Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, it's all day one Drew. And DrewDudley.com is where you can get anything if you're looking for speaking, you're looking for books or an online program so you can create your own leadership test. We've got all okay. that up. I'm saying,
1: Lovely. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, I hope that these this conversation and all the goodness and progress that we've referred to here carries you through your week and you, you start finding all the joy and wonder that Drew has been pointing us to because there is the landscape of a life well lived. Thank you, Drew.
0: Thank you, Linda. Irene. All right. Deu Deu, Deu.